And if you have your Bibles, we're going to have a reading from the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, chapter 37. And if you'll allow me to give you just a little paraphrasing backstory here so you can be caught up on where we are. Uh, this is Joseph, the dreamer. And he had um, brothers, and his brothers were jealous of him. He was loved the most by his father, Israel. And he had just told his brothers about a dream he had. He had prophetic dreams, and one where they were gathering sheaves of grain, and he dreamt that his sheaf stood tall and erect among the others, and his brother's sheaves bowed down to his. And so... That didn't go over very well with his brothers, as you imagine it would. I don't know if I would have shared that dream with them if I was, if I was him. So they're very jealous of him. Okay, so we're going to pick up the story in Genesis chapter 37, verse 17, 17b, uh, where Joseph is looking for his brothers, and he's going out to find them. And uh, spoiler alert, they are not real pleased to see him. So in 17b, so Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. So they saw him in the distance, and before he reached him, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him in the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and to take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing that his father gave him, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty, and there was no water in it. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded down with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And so his brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came up, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes he went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? And in verse 31, Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son 
in the grave, though his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. That's our scripture declaration. Lord, we honor your word to us. May your truth become our heart's pursuit and our life's practice. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for these amazing stories we can read on how your people came about and the things that you have done throughout history. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, thank you, Eric, and thank you, everyone, for being here and being a part of today's worship service. We are continuing today uh, in the, the message series that we started for the first time last week, and that is Better Decisions and Fewer Regrets. Now, if you guys realize and recognize that I've actually got the uh, thing going today over here on this side, so I've still got the same issue. This one's coming back. It's been fixed. It's coming back. I just want you to know. But if I do this again, y'all have freedom to laugh at me. I understand. I get it. It's kind of one of those habits that dies slow. But today, we're talking about better decisions and fewer regrets. And I want to encourage you, if you can, grab a copy of this book, listen to this book. It is something that can really change not only your own life, but also the lives of those that are around you and those lives that touch yours. Because truth be told, we never make a single decision that affects only us. Let's keep moving as we go to this next slide. This is where you can find it via Audible, and uh, I've got zero credits available. My next credit is coming the 19th, if y'all are wondering. Uh, but yes, better decisions and fewer regrets. It's only four hours and nine minutes, and uh, it is definitely worth the read. 847 people have rated it as a 4.7 uh, out of five, so that's pretty good. And I told you guys last week about one of them saying, well, this person's a little too preachy for me, and I was like, well, the, he's a preacher, so that's kind of how that works. Um, but the person that actually writes this book is somebody that you may or may not be familiar with. His name is Andy Stanley. This is what Andy looks like. And actually, Andy is one of those guys that you just hate. I mean, he looks like he's about 23 years old. That dude's like 62 at this point. So it really makes me mad. Uh, I'm wearing every day on my face these days. But Andy Stanley is a pastor. He's an author. And he's the son of Dr. Charles Stanley. Do any of you guys recognize that name? Okay. So that's uh, his father. And we don't have a ton in common other than we're preachers. And we have fathers that were also preachers. But um, I wanted to show you, uh, and, well, before we go to this next slide, let me tell you that I'm probably relying more on this book in this particular teaching series more heavily than I am probably ever, just simply because there's so much good material in here, so much good that you can you know, kind of learn from and can really direct your path in a different way. I'm even using some of the own uh, audio book at the very end. You'll see that again today in a video. But I got to tell you, he talked about this same phenomenon that I can identify with. This is something else that we share in common. Andy Stanley talked about how his grandfather was somebody who was very much uh, a big influence uh, in his life, but uh, that his other grandfather was one that was a difficult person to get over and to kind of overcome some of the things that he had to say. He said that he was not for Dr. Charles Stanley being in the ministry, and I can totally identify with that because that's how my grandfather felt about my dad joining the ministry. I've got a picture here, and uh, this is my dad here. I put the arrow 
he's the oldest of this family. There's my dad, my granny, my granddad before they were divorced and split up. That's my Uncle Roy, my Aunt Barbara, and my Uncle Ron. Right now, the only two that are left in this whole picture are my Uncle Ron, the youngest, and my dad, who happens to be the oldest son. Whenever my dad started talking to his dad, my, my granddaddy here on the left, whenever he started talking to him about the idea of going into the ministry, he told my dad, he said, I'd rather see you in the grave than in the pulpit. And um, Andy Stanley said, it's a funny thing because his stepfather, uh, his step-grandfather, probably would have lived a very different life had he known that the son that he abused would eventually become somebody who owned a, or a, a, preached in a big, uh, you know, a big church and then had a, 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 a program that went out to thousands and thousands and thousands of people where he could tell the story of what happened when he grew up. He probably would have handled it very differently knowing that that family secret would come out. And let me just share with you a lot of the time when we as preachers speak about these family secrets, it's because for some reason, getting up three foot higher than you guys and uh, turning on a few lights and turning off a few lights makes people sometimes seem like they're on a different plane and dealing with different things and doing different dynamics than your own life. My life is a ton like your life. I have a lot of problems. I have a lot of issues that I have in my own life and I have a lot of history. I have a lot of drama in my past, and my family's drama still goes along with me. Now, can any of you guys relate to that? It's not just me, right? We all got drama. We all got stories. We all got problems. We all got issues. And so whenever I talk about this stuff, it's to tell you that everything that I'm sharing is not because I've got it all figured out, not because I've lived a perfect life or I've had a perfect life lived around me. The truth of the matter is, is that my granddaddy and my grandma and my granny, the one that's such a big influence in my life before she passed, their story could have gone on midday TV show and been just fine and fit right in. I mean, there's craziness and all kinds of stuff that is just in history, and every single one of those pieces of our history continues to affect me, affected my dad, affected our family, and then to this day, it still kind of shadows and echoes. Well, I just want to do a very important thing in my life, and that is, is that I don't want to go down that same path that my granddad did because, not because he was a terrible person, but because he made choices that had terrible consequences. And if you have had that experience in your past, A, you're not alone, but B, you and I have the option to rewrite our own story. That whatever was given to me as a script from those before me is still a decision that I make today, whether or not I will let that echo and resonate and affect my kids, or if I will flip the script and change the story. If you guys are with me, can you get an amen on this? Amen? Okay. So I share these things with you because we're coming at these things from a lot of the same places. And, and if you've heard a few of my messages, if you've heard me mention my granddad, you know there was a lot of drama. I won't go into all of it because that's not really the point. But the point is, is that it's always difficult and we always have things in our past. Let's go to our next slide very quickly. 
three things that we're going to agree on. And I shared this with you last week. If you were here, you'll, you'll see and recognize these things. But I wanted to share with you, as I did last week, the truth is, is that I could be very, very vague and very, very general, and it will be something that you'll go, oh, that's pretty helpful. But the more specific that I get, the more clear it will become about the decisions that we make that affect and the way that it affects things in our life. So I will be a little bit more pointed and a little more specific about some of the decisions that we make. But in the process of that, will you guys all just give me some grace and know that, A, I love you guys. I want what is best for you guys. There's no way that I would ever single any one of you out for any reason or purpose at all. This is something that all of us can relate to. And I promise you, if I say something that you think, oh, Randy's mentioning me, I promise you there's at least one other person, but probably more like, 25 other people that are going through the same thing that you are and dealing with some of these same issues. So we're going to decide that these are the things that we agree on. And as we move forward, there's no judgment here. It's just, let's try to get on a better path. You guys with me? Amen. All right. Y'all good. Okay. So three things we're going to agree on. Our decisions are the steering wheels for the direction and the destination of our lives. Every single one of our lives really just comes down to a lot of decisions that we have made back to back to back to back and the ramifications coming back to us. The second is the lesson is universal truth, not for any one person specifically, even if we do get specific, I just mentioned that. And then thirdly, you must do some work to overcome the way that you allow you to persuade you. <laughs> and the reason I said you is because that is all of us. Every single one of us persuade ourselves to make bad decisions. Now, real quickly, I'm going to give you an uncomfortable truth. How many of you realize that every single bad decision that you've ever made, there's one common denominator, and that is, guess what? You. Me. Me. You. You. Me. Me. You. You. Exactly. It's you. So that's what I'm saying. Every one of us have all made a bad decision that we'd like to go back and undo, and we were the ones who made it. Probably because we talked ourselves into something that we probably knew at that time wasn't real good. But how many of us here today wish our fathers or wish our mothers would have had more self-control in the area of substance abuse or control of their sex drive or control of the money management or the anger management that they had? How many of you have decisions that have had long-reaching implications and even for now, some of us, these decisions are leading to hurts, regrets, and have stuck with us for years, maybe even decades. We can't judge them 100%, though, because the other truth is, is that we personally deal with we've done something that we wish we hadn't done, and we've all gone somewhere we thought we would never go. We've all quit a job that we wish we hadn't quit, or at least not quit in that way or at that specific time. We've all bought something that we wish we hadn't bought, and every month when we make a payment, it's like a reminder of that decision that you wish you could undo. We've all let a pattern happen in our own life that we knew was destructive when we invited it in. But when we did, we said, you know what? I will always be the master, and I will never actually be mastered by this decision, and then found out that you were very wrong. Or maybe you've said something you wish you hadn't said, or at very least wish you hadn't said it in that way. Or you've said to yourself, when I'm married, when I have kids, when I have my own house, when I run my own place, I'll never be this way. I'll never sound like that. I'll never say those things. I'll never act like that towards other people 
but then you look around at your life and realize that because of the choices you've made, you sound a lot like, act a lot like, and do a lot of things that you said you would never, ever do. Isn't this true of all of us? Okay, so if it's true of all of us, let's just talk about how we can make better decisions and live with fewer regrets. Let's keep moving here, and don't miss this. No decision that you make only affects you. It never has, and it never will. Let's keep moving. We'll go to this, and there are five types of questions to ask. The integrity question, we talked about that last week, and that was, am I telling myself the truth Really? Am I really telling myself the truth? Today, we're going to talk about the legacy question. Next week, the conscience. The week after, the maturity question. And then finally, the relationship question. But today, we're going to focus on the legacy question. And what is the legacy question? It's this, this next slide. What story do I want to tell? What story do I want to tell? Let's go to our next slide as well. This is the big idea. Your decisions determine your story. Your decisions determine your story. How many of you guys believe that? Your decisions actually determine your story. The things that you decide will tell you where you're heading and where you're going. Now, I want to just say something. This is good news and bad news because the good news is is that you've got the power to make a change in your life and change in your direction The bad news is is that you have to overcome you just like I have to overcome I, (laughs) me, again. You see what I'm saying? It's me. It's you. It's us that we have to fight against to get on that right path and stay on that right path. Now, I want to share something with you guys, and I've told you before that I've you know, worked in hospice and I shared with people at the very ends of their lives just some of the things that are going on. And, and you'd be amazed and you'd be surprised. Well, probably wouldn't really be that surprised. But a lot of times I've had to talk with families as a chaplain about the idea and the concept of hurt that happened decades before and has never been resolved. And suddenly mom has a six-month you know, prognosis. She's going to live for about six months and then she'll be passing on. And so that person has a little bit of a a blessing and a little bit of a grace period that they've got six months to determine how am I going to handle this? But they've also got a deadline on something that most of us would just rather ignore and push back. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Y'all could see this, right? And so tons of times I've had conversations with people who say, you know what? I had this going on with dad, and now he's getting sick, and now he's about to pass away, and I still have not forgiven him or dealt with, or we've never even brought up what we know he did to all of us kids, and it's still there, and it never has been resolved. And I've had the same thing happening, not just from the family, but I've had the same thing happening from the the parents and the patients who are this close to passing. And in the midst of it all, they're like, I don't really have a close relationship with my kids. I wish I did, but I don't. And I know that the reason that I do not is because of the things that I did when I was younger and dumb. And I just didn't know. And I made all these mistakes, and I've just never really had the chance to say something about it. Here is the advice that I have given to those people a thousand times. If you're still breathing, the pen 
is still in your hand to write a different story, to write a change that you want to see happen in your life. Whether it's with your parents, with your siblings, with friends that you have been estranged from, whether it's your kids, I don't care who it is, I don't care what the relationship is. If you're still breathing oxygen, and I think most of you here today are, that's the good news, the pen is still in your hand. You can write a new beginning, a new middle, a new late part of the story, or even if it is just this, it's just the ending part, but it is so important. And I'm here to tell you that I've seen people who literally have, have counted their days with days and weeks, and it made a difference, and it brought peace to family who had been struggling for literally decades so it's never too late to write the final chapter. It might not be perfect, but at least it can have some touch of grace to it. Are you guys all with me? Y'all hear what I'm saying? Can I get an amen? Amen? Okay, so let me just say again, beginning, some of you are very young, you're writing your story now, and I'm here to tell you, you probably don't recognize it, but there are things that will go with you from, the rest of, from this time for the rest of your life things that you will regret if you go the wrong direction. And I encourage you, don't think that this is just for adults. This is 1,000% for young people and adults. And then middle, if you're a person who says, you know, I've got kids and they probably won't even remember the things that I'm doing or not doing with them, you know, the way that I'm dealing with them and not treating them the perfect way, all of that stuff that you're kind of justifying, I'm here to tell you, that stuff lingers. And not only that, but it's real hard to stop a habit whenever it's gotten started. So just be very careful that your middle is a story that you'd like to tell. And I'm going to be honest with you. Um, <clears throat> this is hard for me to admit. I'd like to say that I'm middle-aged, um, but that means that I would die at 102 years old if that's the case. So I'm probably past middle age. I'm late in my life. I'm not necessarily all the way at the end, at least, Lord, I don't think so. But, you know, when that comes, that's fine. Right now, I think I'm in the late stage. Uh, I'd love to still be in the middle, but I'm not. My kids are gone. But I don't want to send them out and stop being an influence in their life. I want to make sure that the late builds on what I tried to do in the middle and makes up for the things that I didn't do as well as I wish I had in the middle. And so even those of you who are at the ending and you say, it's still not good, it's not too late. The pen is still in your hand to write your story. Your decisions determine your story and it's not too late. I'm going to say it one more time and then I'm going to ask you guys to say it with me. Your decisions determine your story. On the count of three, you guys join me real quickly. Ready? One, two, three. Your decisions determine your story. Now, will you do me a favor? Will you say it, my decisions determine my story on the count of three? Because this is not theoretical. This is real. And if your story includes some things that you don't want to include, then maybe this one's for you. All right, ready? One, two, three. My decisions determine my story. Let's keep moving. As we go on here, Andy Stanley said this. He said the decisions that we make in the valley are eventually just stories that we tell when we're out of the valley. 
So write a good story and decide a good story. This is true in so many ways that for most of us, it's just the decision. And in the midst of it all, we forget that it is truly making an impact and writing the story for us. Let's go to our next slide. And this is your something to learn. Human beings, when dealing with decisions, have strong emotions attached to them. They begin to battle focalism. And that's the act of focusing on one part of the equation and decision to the point of where all else becomes irrelevant to us. We start disregarding important information because one other piece of information has become the focal point. It's focalism. Now, if y'all didn't learn anything else today, you at least learned what focalism is. You probably won't ever be asked that question, I hate to say, but that's true. You know what it sounded like whenever I was in high school? My goodness, she is so beautiful. I don't care what her personality looks like. I just care what she looks like on the outside. Are y'all judging me right now? I mean, I, I see judgment in your eyes because, right? You see what I'm saying? When you're young, oh, look at her. And, 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 you know, I know it ends when you're 18 because none of y'all have ever stayed with anybody just because they were the, the most handsome guy that you've ever met or the most beautiful woman that you've ever dated, right? None of y'all have ever done that. And you made all kinds of bad choices with a person that you knew you shouldn't be with. And you did it all because you were focalizing on one single point and disregarding all the other important points. If y'all have ever known someone who's done something like that, can I see your hands real quick? Y'all know what I'm talking about. You know, y'all look at Shelly. I did all right, right? I mean, I'm just saying, I did all right. She was beautiful too, and, uh, you know, more beautiful than the others. I ain't going to lie, but she also had lots of other things going. And the great thing is, is that I made a great choice there, but it was encompassing everything, not just simply one part. Big difference. Let's keep moving. Ha <laughs> Y'all know what this is, right? If, if you had to choose the words, it's, it's, let's see, one, two, three letters. And yes, when I was showing you, Eric, I got arthritis, man. I can only put up certain fingers, you know? So yeah, three letters or three words, excuse me, that explain this phenomenon. You guys know what it is on the count of three? Ready? One, two, three. Rose-colored glasses. Have y'all ever heard of rose-colored glasses? That means disregarding all of the information, but looking at only the one beautiful point in the middle, right? You see? And so for most of us, how many of you have ever made a decision with rose-colored glasses on, and then later it came back to haunt you? Shelly, don't you dare sit there and shake your head like you're shaking your head right now, because I feel like you're shaking your head looking right at me. All right, let's keep moving here and keep going to this something to learn. This other something to learn comes from the passage of Scripture that Eric read beginning in Genesis 37 and going all the way to the end of Genesis. It's an incredible story. One of my favorite characters in all of the Old Testament for sure, all of the Bible as well. It's Joseph. And Joseph, from the time that he was sold into slavery by his brothers, that's what Eric just read, to the time when he came out of the Egyptian jail or dungeon and became the prime minister of Egypt in a matter of hours. According to Genesis 41, 46, was about 13 years. From about age 17 to about 30 years old, 
it goes way beyond saying that a man who could run the most powerful empire in the world at that time, at age 30, was way, way, way more mature than most 30-year-olds. Can I get an amen, right? Okay, so here's what I see. How did he get to the place where he could run the most important empire in the world through some of the most difficult times? Can I tell you how? He made decision after decision after decision to follow what God had for him in his life. And I want to talk a little bit about that. If you don't know the story, I'm going to give you kind of a quick rundown of the story. Some of you know it well. This will just be kind of a rehearsing and a rehashing of the things that you know. But here is what I will tell you. Joseph was hated by his brothers. And they decided that they were going to kill him whenever he was coming to see them while they were out in the fields. But did you hear Reuben? Reuben spoke up and said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're going to throw him in a well with his intention of coming back and saving his life later on. Y'all heard that story that Eric just read just a few moments ago. Well, there's always a Reuben around whenever you're making a decision. But here's the problem. Most of the time, she's not saying things really loudly. She's just saying really important things. He's not saying things with the loudest voice, but he's saying things that are the most important for you to hear before you make a bad choice or decision. But for most of us, we don't want to listen to Reuben. We want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. And so because of that, we shut out Reuben when Reuben is the only one speaking sense in the midst of it all. Do you guys understand where I'm coming from? So let's read here. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue Joseph from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. And Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. But do you guys remember what the rest of what was going on? They did not leave him there. They instead pulled him out of the well and they sold him to the Midianite traders who eventually sold him to a man named Potiphar in Egypt. We can already see God's fingerprints leading in the direction where Joseph is going to go and where he's going to end up and the powerful things that he's going to do with his life. But in this moment right now, I promise you, Joseph went from being the favorite son to being forgotten and being left for dead emotionally, spiritually, every other thing that you want to think about. He, his life was no longer his own. His life was dependent on other people, and that is a difficult, difficult place to be. So as we kind of keep moving, we see that they sold him to Potiphar. But if you saw any more of this story, whether it's you know, Joseph, King of Dreams, that uh, DreamWorks put together a number of years ago, or if you've read this scripture or any of these different stories, you know that when Potiphar took over with Joseph and he had him there as a servant in his house, he realized this young man could do anything and do it all well. God's hand was with him. And so he just basically put his whole house in charge, uh, in Joseph's charge and said, take care of it all. I'll just simply worry about what I'm eating and everything else you can worry about. I'm going to leave it and trust it all to you. But the one thing that he did not trust to him was Potiphar's wife. We're going to call her Mrs. Potiphar, okay, because we don't know her name from Scripture. 
But Mrs. Potiphar was a bit of a cougar. Do y'all know what that is? Do y'all? Okay. She didn't know what a cougar was because that would not be invented for about 4,000 more years or so. Uh, but yes, she was an older woman who had a thing for younger men. Some of y'all were falling asleep and suddenly y'all are awake. All right. That's why I do these things. She was desperate for Joseph to begin to have an affair with her. And that was not what he was going to do. Joseph actually had something incredibly powerful that he said because he was going back and forth with her and just constantly like giving her, you know, the pushback. No, no, we can't. No, no, no. I'm not doing. No, no, no. I'm not going to go down that road with you. Let's stop for a second. Joseph was a slave in that house. He was supposed to obey. Can I just be honest? Joseph was also a man in his 20s and had a woman begging him to begin an affair with him. He was resisting the difficult, the difficult thing, knowing that in many ways he was putting himself on a firing line for doing what was right. And he had the other things that are just pulling him to do what was wrong and sweep it under the rug. You guys with me? It would have been easier for him to give in a hundred times easier for him to give in. He did not because he knew it was wrong. He knew he was going to resist because he wanted to do the right thing. But here is what was so interesting. Joseph spoke about his thought process and why he was making a good decision instead of a bad one. Here's what he said on this next slide. Uh, let's go on to this next one and then we'll back up to that one. Thanks, Colin. I threw a little curveball at you, but thank you. So here's what he said in Genesis 39. He refused Mrs. Potiphar. He says, with me in charge, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in this house except everything he owns has been entrusted to my care. So how then could I do a wicked thing like this and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. So listen real close. Do you see what I underlined there? She spoke to Joseph what? Day after day. Here's a big problem for us. A lot of the time when we make a good decision, we think that should do it. <laughs> and then we follow it up with decisions that we're careless in or make bad decisions. Y'all have ever been there before? So what is going on with Joseph? He's got a temptation that he's facing day after day after day after day that would be easier to give in than to resist. And yet he knows that he should resist and he starts calling out the reasons why. He says, my master has been good to me. I do not want to betray the man who put trust in me. And I could not do that to my God either. And he basically just said, I don't want that to be my story. Joseph is the hero of this story because he resists what would have been easier to do and instead acts with what was right to do. For most of us, we don't choose right nearly as often and we give in way too much to the thing that's kind of speaking to us in the back of our mind that would be easier to give into than to resist. So it's so important that we realize that our story will always be told. Now, come back with me for a second. 
I'm not going to go into what was going on with my granddad and how he was running around on my granny and all that stuff. I won't tell you all the sordid details and all the crazy stories. But here's what I will tell you. It wasn't just one woman. It was many. It wasn't one time. It was many. And it wasn't one bad season. It was many. And it was over and over and over and over again that he gave himself to the wrong decision that cost him his family. Now, I'm way, 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 (laughs) um, I'm way, way biased about this. But my family is an amazing family to be a part of. I love my family. They're not perfect, but they're a great group of people. And he pulled himself out of that to be involved in a family that wasn't even half the family that mine is. Also, he could chase someone who weeks later, months later, would be nothing to him anymore. And I promise you that stuff fades. And when that stuff fades, all you're left is the story that people have decided to tell about you based on the facts that you chose for yourself. You guys understand what I'm saying? This is hard to do, but this is important. I want us to go back that slide if you don't mind, Colin. We'll jump back that slide. Here's a tip. When confronted with anything or anybody that has strong emotional appeal, press pause, not play. Strong emotional appeal should trigger a red flag and not a green light. Now, listen to what Andy said in the rest of his words. He says, strong emotion should trigger a red flag, not a green light. When something is emotionally appealing, instead of leaning in, we should step back. Not because it's not the right decision, it may be. Not because it's not a good investment, it may be. Not because it's not the perfect job, because it may be. But we should step back because anything with strong emotional appeal, even the right things, clouds our judgment. So pause, think about it, get your bearings, call a friend, and most importantly, consider your story. Considering your story positions and empowers you to, contract, uh, the, to counteract the effects of focalism. This alone makes the question of what story do I want to tell worth asking. It draws us out of the immediate and focuses us instead on the eventual. It is so important that you and I determine that if we do actually still have the pen, that we're still making wise decisions about what we write at that time. All right, let's keep moving here, and let's go to this next slide, and I want to talk about this. This is Joseph, and just at least six of the write my story kind of decisions that he made in the story that we've been reading. He doesn't give up. He gives his best to Potiphar. He easily could have said, you know what? I don't deserve to be here. This is not even my fault. My brothers hate me. Not because I'm a bad guy, but because dad likes me the best. I can't change that. That's on him, not on me. So I'm going to sit here and I'm going to pout. And I'm going to pretend that it's all going to get better somehow on its own. That's not what Joseph did. Now, can we all just admit that would be at least a thought in our mind? This isn't my fault. I don't have to change anything because it's not my fault. I promise you something. All of us get given stuff to us that is not our fault. But we will choose whether it affects the rest of our life and those around us or not by deciding what we're going to do with what we've been given. It's so important. 
So he doesn't give in to Mrs. Potiphar's advances. I still don't know her name. <laughs> but Mrs. Potiphar kept coming on. He said day after day, no, 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 I'm not doing that. And then thirdly, he does not give up. He gives his best to the chief jailer. And this is where our story kind of shifts scenes, but similar themes. In other words, Potiphar's, you know, very upset, probably more so at his wife than Joseph. I have a feeling he knew that it was all a lie because he probably could have had him executed, but he didn't. He just sent him on down the road. And so more than likely, he knew it was her, not him. But guess who still got the bad end of the deal? It was still Joseph that got the bad end of the deal. And so he goes to another jail and he gives his best once again to the jailer and becomes the, the person who leads the house, so to speak. And then two men, the cupbearer and the baker to Pharaoh himself, come and say, I've had dreams. I've had dreams. They seem like they're more than just simply bad pizza, right? And so please tell me of what's going on in this dream. And he tells them a hard truth. One, he says, good news for you. But the baker, he says, bad news for you. You're literally going to have a, a life that ends in three days. And he was proven to be right. Then he stays engaged because unfortunately, the cupbearer to the king forgot him. And he had to stay two more years in that prison after he could have had a way out and could have had an audience with the Pharaoh. But then... Eventually, he's brought out. He's brought into the presence of Pharaoh. He interprets his dream, and when he does, it all comes true. And Pharaoh puts him in charge as the prime minister of the most powerful nation and empire in the world at that very moment. He's 30 years old. He goes from the jail cell to the prime minister's office in less than 24 hours. It's a rags to riches story. It's dreams to destiny. It's ridiculous how quickly God moved it all around, except for he's been in jail for 13 of his 30 years when he finally gets released. But here's what is the difference that we don't see very often, that every time he had an opportunity, he made the right choice. He made the choice to tell the story that would be a powerful impact on people's lives from that day forward and chose all of the right things, not the easy things. And this is where we can learn so much from Joseph. We don't need to be choosing those things that are immediate. We need to be choosing long-term and those stories that we have that we share. Let's go to our next slide. And this is Joseph. And he is standing before his brothers. There's a, a big reveal that happens. And eventually they're brought back to Egypt. This is where Moses comes in a little later on. But just before, you know, uh, uh, Jacob passes and dies, he comes and lives in Egypt. And he's reunited with Joseph. Eventually he passes and his brothers start looking around and going, what if Joseph has just been being nice to us because dad's still here? And now that dad's gone, he's going to get us like we really, truly deserve. Y'all know what I'm saying? This is what's happening. And I want you to hear what Joseph says to his brothers. So when Joseph's brothers saw that his father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs that we did to him? They're not even pretending. They, they used to lie about their life earlier. Now they're not pretending. All the things that we should not have done now we know. <laughs> Truth has a way of coming out, doesn't it? So they sent word to Joseph and they said, 
your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. And then we next slide. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the, father, of the God of your father. And when they messaged him, Joseph wept. And his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him and said, We're your slaves. And then the next slide here. The next one. Is it on there? Oh, but Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he, spoke, and he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. How many of you would have done that? <laughs> Y'all took half my life. Y'all took half my life when it wasn't even my fault. You did that to me. I could have been broken. You didn't even know that I would survive. How could you have done that to somebody who was 17 years old? What were you thinking? That's what we would want to say. And would we be right in saying it? Yes. Would it all be true? Yes. But here is why Joseph's story is so dramatically powerful. He had the right to say it. He chose not to. He had the right to be kind and let them live, but just don't want to see your face no more. Y'all stay away from me. Y'all can live, but I don't want to see you ever again. Take the grain and get on home. I got nothing for you. Instead, he says, no, no, no. Even though dad's gone, and even though you're lying about what he said, <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm going to take care of you, and I'm going to take care of your kids. You guys don't have to worry about anything else ever again in your life. I'm taking care of y'all. Y'all are my family. Joseph knew how to write a story, didn't he? I mean, that is a story worth telling. And on one side, you've got 11 of them who became liars for life, almost killed their dad with grief. And then you've got one man who stood up against and stood up under a life that we would never wish on our worst enemy, and he came out better, and they came out the same. Why? Because of the decisions that he made. You see what I'm saying? And so for all of us, we see better decisions leading to fewer regrets. It sometimes puts us against the thing that we want to do, but it is always the thing that we ought to do, and we usually know it. Let's go to our next slide. Don't miss this. We make our best decisions if we focus on ultimate outcomes, not immediate consequences. Think story, not the feelings of the moment right here and now. And I'm running short on time, so we're going to keep moving very quickly. The things that we choose in between. You might be saying, but Randy, this is like important, but I'm not really facing a big decision. I'm going to hit you with three things, and I'm going to hit them very quickly. Begin with your attitude. Because for most of us, we have remnants of the attitude that we should not have, and we face every new day with that same attitude. Choose your attitude very carefully because the Bible says, don't be deceived, God is not mocked. Every man sows something and he will reap it back. 
For many of us, if we would fix our attitude, we would change a direction in our life. And that can be done today. It's one decision and then another one and then another one and then another one each and every day to have a good attitude instead of a bad one. These are things that we choose in between these big ones. And let's go to this next slide. I'm not going to read it. But here's what Chuck Swindoll says. We have a choice every day regarding the attitude that we're going to embrace. Life is 10% of what happens to us and 90% of how we react to it. Our attitude is everything. You can go back and look at it. It's a whole paragraph. It's an amazing, amazing quote. Let's go to our next slide. The second thing that we can choose in between is our action today. For some of us, we're saying, one day I'm going to be that kind of person. One day I will be that thing that I hope to be. But the truth of the matter is, is that you and I both know that someday, sometimes never comes. You know, we just never get to that place where the someday that we were waiting on never actually knocks on our door. And so we never become the people that we intended to become, not because we didn't have a chance, but because we chose to delay it. We had the someday syndrome. I would say to you, Give your very best to this day today and you will be amazed at how life begins to change the way that it looks and the things that you will change in your own sowing and reaping if you would take action today instead of waiting to become the best person that you can be. The third thing very quickly is our attention. We got to push back on those strong emotions like Andy was mentioning. If there's a a strong emotional appeal, it should be a red flag, not a green light. It should be press pause and not press play. Because most of the time, if we're going to make a bad decision, it's because it's laced with emotion. And that's usually not the best way to make a good decision. Let's keep moving here. Here's our apply by. I apply by this. What part of your story do you want to rewrite? What does that look like and what is the first step? Let me just very quickly break these down and then we have this short video as we end. What part of your story do you want to rewrite? If you could say, you know what, if I could just end it in a different way or if I could just change the plot or there'd be a big twist or a big change in the things that have been written in my story, this is what it would look like. And then decide. Okay, so what is the thing that is the first step to going in that new direction instead of the same old direction? Maybe it's a phone call. Maybe it's a text that you get on your phone or an email that you send. Maybe it's something like that. Maybe it's an invitation to go out. Say, hey, we haven't seen one another in six years. We need to get back together. Or maybe it's something where you would just simply say, you know what? It begins with me changing my attitude and forgiving somebody who did me wrong, who genuinely owes me, but I'm going to be big enough to just simply let that go and say, it is not about me. I would rather have you in my life than hold on to this poison that's doing me in. And so for all of us, I encourage you, what does that look like? Get it clear in your mind. And what is that first step? And I challenge you, take that very first step today. Maybe an apology, maybe a text, on and on down the line. But you still have the pen in your hand. You can still write a brand new part and a new chapter in the story wherever you find yourself. Let's hear what Andy has to say at the end of this particular chapter. Let's check it out. We will be forced to make decisions we don't really want to make. 
all of them will be made in some sort of emotional context. There are no emotionally neutral decision-making environments. And because of that, we will be prone to opt for happy now over healthy later, pleasure over self-control. And because our hearts are deceitful, because of confirmation bias, we will be prone to talk ourselves into things we will regret later. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to continue to be that way. There's a way out of that destructive cycle. And although we've never met, I bet there's something in you that wants out. So take a baby step. Start being brutally honest with yourself. Quit lying to yourself. Refuse to make up reasons that are actually justifications. And when you catch yourself selling yourself, just stop and say, there I go again. Pause and have a heart to heart with yourself by asking, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this really? Now to help you adopt our first question as part of your decision-making filter, I wanna encourage you to make a specific and pointed decision. I'll conclude each chapter with a similar decision, but this one, Honestly, this one may be the most important one and perhaps the most difficult one to keep. And the first decision, our integrity decision, is this. Will you decide, I will not lie to myself even when the truth makes me feel bad about myself. I will not lie to myself even when the truth makes me feel bad about myself. Pardon my presumption, but you may need to write that down and put it where you can see it every day, for a while anyway. I suggest... The mirror. There are worse things than feeling bad about yourself. For starters, clinging to something bad about yourself. Refusing to address what's bad about ourselves is bad for ourselves. Are you willing to be honest with yourself even if it makes you feel bad about yourself? You will never get to where you need to be until you acknowledge where you actually are to begin with. So be honest. Unfortunately, Jeremiah was correct. The heart is deceitful above all things, and it is beyond cure. But now you know, and now you know what to do about it. And now you are better equipped to make better decisions and live with fewer regrets, which is a good thing. After all, your decisions determine the direction and the quality of your life, as well as the lives of those that you love. So, are you being honest with yourself? Are you being honest with yourself, really? Lord, hear my